Welcome back, friends, and hello, new friends. We are so glad that you're here with us today. I have a storyteller with me to share in our universe of stories. Thank you for joining me, Mr. McCord. So, Mr. McCord, when did you start telling stories? About the age of three. My mother came into a room and said, who broke this lamp? And I said, Sue did it. <laughs> that was the first story I remember telling. That is so fantastic. So you started at a very young age. Yes. The first couple of stories that I'll tell you is about a friend of mine. I'll not tell you his actual name. Everyone around this area knows him as Old Honker. Not to make fun of the gentleman, but he does have a rather large nose, <laughs> and therefore we call him Old Honker. He and Miss Maud, his wife, moved in here from Baltimore, Maryland quite a few years ago, and they've settled in. And as most people that come from a different place, they try to blend in, but sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. He is ultra-conservative, and I don't just mean with money or in opinions. He's very conservative with his energy. He might be called just a little bit lazy. His favorite thing to do is get up early, eat a large breakfast, go out and lay down. If it's, the weather's warm enough, he'll go out and lay down in the yard and take a nap. He says that helps his breakfast to digest. Later in the day, he'll wake up and eat lunch and take another nap. This particular day, a cousin of his who had moved here from the same area that he came from had passed away. This was the day of the funeral for the cousin. Miss Maud asked Honker that morning during breakfast, are we going to the funeral? Well, I had thought I would, but I'm really tired today. I think I better have a nap. He goes out in the yard and lays down. Well, as it so happens, the funeral procession, after they leave the funeral home, going to the cemetery, pass by Honker's house. Well, Miss Maud is out in the yard. Honker's laying on the ground, and she says, here it comes, Honk. Here they come. Good, good. And she says, there's the hearse, and there's the family cars, and there's your cousin Herman. You haven't seen him in years. Yeah, okay. She calls off different names of family members, and Honk says, yeah. Directly, Honk says, that's just my bad luck, isn't it? She said, what's that, honey? I laid down facing the house instead of the road. I didn't get to see a bit of it. So that should tell you a little bit about Honk. He didn't have the energy to roll over so he could see these cousins go back. Honk is quite a character sometimes. I helped him to build a yard swing. It was actually what we call a porch swing, but he wanted it out in the yard, so we built a good frame for it. He's quite a large man, so I put extra strong chains on it, reinforced the seat good where it wouldn't break down with him. And Sometimes he naps in his swing instead of on the ground. I went by to see him one day. He was sitting in the swing, and I walked up on him. He was asleep. The local newspaper was in his lap. He has bird dogs, but he keeps them in a pen behind his house. But there was an old hound dog laying in the yard there in the shade of the tree, sound asleep. I woke Honk up when I sat down in the swing beside of him. And he had a good chuckle, and we talked a while. And I said, I didn't realize you had a hound dog, Honk. No, that's not mine. It's my neighbor's, but he comes down here about every day. I kind of like him. said, he reminds me of myself. He said, he don't go far without a nap. I could see the resemblance right there. As we were sitting and talking, and you've probably seen this if you've been around hound dogs. When they sleep, sometimes they will run in their sleep. They'll start off real slow, just moving their hind legs a little. And pretty soon they're moving all four legs faster and faster. Hawk said, I have always wondered what it is they're dreaming about when they do that. Well, I had not thought of this in years. My grandmother was Native American. My great-grandmother, pardon me, was Native American. I'm not real sure which tribe, but 
my grandmother, I never met her. She was already gone before I was born, but my grandmother used to tell me quite a lot about her. Her father, apparently, was something like we would call a medicine man. He knew all the old herb remedies and things, and he knew a lot of what we would call superstitions. And I remembered something that she, that my grandmother had told me that her mother used to say, that if you see a dog running in its sleep, if you will put a paper under its head without disturbing it, take the paper and put it under your pillow that night, you'll dream the same thing the dog is dreaming. And I lied. when I told you that we had a good life, and I said, do you believe that? I said, I don't know. I've just heard that. I don't know. Well, although he's large, he's, he's quite nimble. He got up and eased over to the dog, and he took a, a sheet of paper out of the newspaper and slid it under that dog's head. He didn't ruffle a hair on that dog when he did that. But pretty soon the dog woke up just all at once and looked all around very confused looking and got up and walked off. Honk retrieved his paper, folded it, and put it under his arm where he'd know where it was. He said, I'm going to try that tonight and see how it works. I said, you'll have to let me know. Well, we talked a while, and I went on my way. Really didn't think any more about it. That night, about 1 o'clock in the morning, my phone beside the bed rang. I answered it, and it was Miss Maud. She said, John, can you come immediately? I said, I, I knew Honk has had some heart problems. It really scared me. I said, is it Honk? She said, yes. I said, is it his heart? She said, I don't know, John. All I know is he's outside in his pajamas. He's chased a cat up the tree, and now he has his head hung in a ham can. So I guess he must have dreamed whatever the dog was dreaming. I don't know. <clears throat> Hawk was raised, as I said, in uh, Maryland. And down on the south side of Maryland, if you'll look at a map, or you may be familiar with the country, it's what is known as the Virginia Peninsula. It's a long strip of land, Chesapeake Bay is to one side of it, and uh, the Atlantic Ocean to the other side. Very fertile land. A lot of good farming land in that. Hawk's family had originally owned a large farm down in the Virginia Peninsula. Most of the boys went on up around Baltimore for jobs and settled in there. Hawk had an uncle, Uncle Herschel, who lived there on on the old family farm, quite a large farm. He had mules that he plowed, and he also had tractors. He had gone modern with the tractors, but he still liked to plow the mules also. Hawk had a son that he was just a little different. Pardon me. Uncle Herschel had a son who was just a little different. He did some things just a little bit strange to everyone else. <clears throat> Uncle Herschel was a very religious man, very very strong faith. He always prayed over his crops when he planted them. He prayed over the corn and wheat when he harvested it. He was very much a man of prayer. He had an inspiration one day to build a corn crib out of cedar poles, much like a log cabin, only smaller. He went down in the area where the cedars was, and he chopped down some cedars, and he brought them home, and he trimmed the limbs, and he 
took the bark off of all of them, and they were very pretty because the red cedar showed through and the white, and it was very pretty. And he cut them all to length, and he built a little old corn crib, well, you might say log, like a log house. A very pretty little building. He built it up off the ground so the varmints couldn't get into his corn. And he went up to the closest town and he bought sheet metal roofing, tin roofing, to go on it. And he roofed that thing and boy, the morning sun would shine on that and it would shine like new money. It would knock your eyes out. It was so pretty. And those those cedar poles, and he had sealed between the poles. It was, oh, it was just perfect. You couldn't believe how pretty it was. He built a cedar door to go in it. But his son, Skip, as we all called him, as I say, he did things a little different. Well, Uncle Herschel had dug out a pit back in the field there to make a pond, kind of, hold water to have about irrigating the corn if they needed to. Well, when they dug down, just maybe three feet underground, it was solid rock. Well, he went up to Baltimore and bought some dynamite and some caps, and he brought back. And they drilled holes in the rock around in strategic places and set their dynamite, fastened the caps to it, and set it off. It busted the rock up real good, and they managed to dig their pit out as deep as they wanted to and had them a place to hold water so if they needed water for irrigation. He had a few sticks of dynamite and just a few caps left over. He put them away, he thought, securely, but Skip knew where they was. Well, Hawk was down in the summer staying with Uncle Herschel and the family. Skip gets his idea one day, and he gets out, and he sets traps to catch buzzards. I don't can't understand why anybody wants a buzzard. But Skip tells him, you'll see, I've got an idea. Well, sure enough, he, he has a whole chicken coop full of buzzards. One morning... Uncle Herschel was gone. The older boys are gone. Skip retrieves a buzzard, and he fastens a dynamite cap to its leg with two wires hanging down from it so that eventually they'll touch. The buzzard flies around when he releases it for a little bit, and then kaboom, and all you see is feathers. He thinks that's very funny. Hawk says, that's not a good thing to do. Let's don't do that, Skip. No, that's very funny. That's very funny. I'm going to do another one. So he gets another one. He fastens his dynamite cap to the leg with the wires hanging down. The buzzard makes a couple of rounds, and it sees the roof of that corn crib, and it starts flying toward it. Skip gets very upset. Get away from there. Don't go there. No, no. Go somewhere else. No, no, no. Well, it came in for a landing, and as soon as it, the wires hanging down touched that metal roofing, both of them, kaboom, and all you could see was little cedar poles and metal roofing and corn flying through the air everywhere. So Skip learned a very hard way. Don't play with dynamite. It's dangerous. Hawk and Miss Maud had a daughter. 
she was a very sweet little girl, little Susie. And Hawk was wanting to be sure that she excelled in her education, not only her school education, but also her religious education. He wanted her to excel at everything. He began to teach her her alphabet. At the same time, he was trying to teach her to pray. Well, little Susie was doing her best to learn. One day, Hawk is in the yard watering the flowers. He hears little Susie around the corner of the house. She's talking. He slips around to the corner where he can hear better. And she's on her knees as though she's praying. And she's saying, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K. He thinks to himself, I have confused her. I've tried to teach her her letters. I've also been trying to teach her to pray, and she's got it all put together. So he waited till she was through, and he called her to him, and he said, Honey, I heard you. And he said, uh, Why were you praying like that? And she said, Well, Daddy, you have told me that those letters of the alphabet will spell any word that you want to say. And I just felt like I needed to pray but I didn't really know what to say, so I thought, well, I'll just call out all the letters and he can just arrange them ever how he wants to. So, evidently, Susie caught on better than Hawk did. We'll move on to another bunch of people that I knew. They lived at Middle Branch, Tennessee. Don't look for this on your map. Don't pull out your phone and go to your Google because it doesn't really exist. It's a combination of three communities that I lived in growing up. There at Middle Branch, there was a family of people. The father of the family was from Switzerland. His name was Bill Shortridge. No one knew for sure where the mother was. She was not from the U.S. They figured she might be from some of the Scandinavian countries, but no one ever knew for sure. She never told. Bill had come with a load of cattle from Switzerland, brown Swiss cows, to Wisconsin. Later on, a gentleman there at Middle Branch had bought half of the herd. And Bill came to Tennessee with him to help handle the cattle. And after he got here, the, the man who had bought the cows, Mr. Frank White, offered Bill a job. So he stayed on. A couple of years later, he asked permission to go back to Wisconsin where his brother lived. He thought, he, Mr. White thought, he was going back to visit his brother, and probably he did. He brought back a wife, and Mr. White had a rent house on his property, and he gladly moved him in there because Bill was an excellent hand. His, his actual name was William Tell Shortridge, and if you know the story, a lot of Swiss young lads are named William Tell, whatever, and this was his name. But he was known as Bill Shortridge, quite a man. He was a short, but very strong, stocky man. His wife was a very tall woman. They looked like an odd couple, but they were well matched. They had 11 sons. They were all born in the 40s. And it was something that they seemed to be proud of. They had a son a year until the twins came. They had two that year. And between 1940 and 1949, they had 11 sons. Their names was quite something. They started out naming them alphabetically. There was Arnold, Bertrell, Cletus, 
Standridge, Etheridge, and then for some reason she strayed away from her alphabetical naming. She had a set of twins. She had already sat, decided on Horace for the next child. They were sure it would be a boy. Only when the time of birth came, they were twins. Well, they named one of them Horace. Mr. Shortridge was talking to her. She was still in the bed there, and he said, Mother, what will we name the other one? Name one Horace. What will we name the other one? Miss Shortridge was kind of a coarse-talking woman sometimes. She said, Heck, I don't know anything else that starts with H. Sure enough, they named him Heck. Not Hector, not Heck-a-welder, but Heck. Heck Shortridge. Okay. The next son that came the following year, she was reading in the book of Luke that night before he was born, so she named him Luke. He was always very thankful that she was not reading Revelation or Ecclesiastes. But then, for some reason that no one ever knew but the Lord, and he has not told any of us that I know of, the last three she named 9, 10, and 11. This caused a lot of confusion in school. Luke and I were in the same grade in school. 9, 10, and 11 were the next three years behind us in school. We had a substitute teacher. She didn't know the situation. She saw a boy in the hall, and she said, Son, what is your name? And he said, Ten. Ten Shortridge. Well, that might be a nickname. What is your name? He said, That's my name, teacher. Ten. She said, I know better than that. said, the you have brothers here in school, I'll ask one of them. Well, you can ask nine or eleven, either one, they'll, they'll tell you my name's ten. So I guess that teacher found out that everybody's name doesn't go along with what you think. They were quite a family, though. They they worked hard. If you wanted a barn built, you called a Shortridge family. They came. What they started, they finished in the same day. They could They could put up poles, put up the stringers, wall up the barn put the roof on it and everything. They started about daylight, they finished about dark, but they built a barn in one day. Of course, there was quite a crew of them. The older boys were about grown, and they all worked. They were quite good workers. Mr. Frank White, who later gave Mr. Shortridge the house that he lived in in 20 acres because he was not only a, a good workhand, he was a good friend to Mr. White's family. But... He, they asked the Shortridge family, Mr. White did, to come over and cut some wood for him. He said, if you'll cut me a winter's wood, I'll, I'll pay you for it. Well, there was plenty of wood on the ground. They cut enough for about three winters that day. Mr. White was anticipating buying a new pickup soon. He usually kept one about 10 years, and he pretty well wore it out. The Shortridges didn't have a vehicle. And he told Mr. Shortridge, you guys have... Supplied me enough wood for three years there, maybe more. And in lieu of paying you, I'm just going to give you that truck. I'm going to buy a new one. I'll give you that one. Oh, they were thrilled to death. The old truck was kind of a rattle trap, but that was the first vehicle they'd owned. You'd see them coming down the road. Mr. and Miss Shortridge sitting up in the cab. All 11 boys standing up in the back. I know that's dangerous nowadays. They probably would frown on it, but that's the way they rode. There in the little community of Middle Branch, there was a store 
Mr. Dalton Woodshed had a store. He was quite an entrepreneur. He had several things going. It was quite a long building. He had a store in part of it. In the middle section of it was the local post office, which he rented out to the postal department. Up on the upper end of the building was a big building. It had a garage door in the back that you could drive into, double doors in the front that opened off of the sidewalk. And he kept building material in there. Anytime he went to Nashville to pick up hardware or anything, whatever room he had on his truck, he bought building material and brought back. He always had two-by-fours, metal roofing, nails, whatever you needed. And then if you needed for a specific job, he would bring whatever you needed from Nashville. But he was always very cautious because he was afraid that there'd be a fire in the warehouse. He did not like for anyone to smoke in his warehouse. He wanted people to be very careful about a fire in the warehouse. Well, this particular summer, it had been very dry. People's wells went dry that had never gone dry before around there. The community well there had gone dry. And people could remember it way back. And it had never been dry before. Ponds were dry. People were trying to sell their cattle, but nobody wanted to buy them because nobody had water for the cattle. Well, on a Saturday afternoon there, Mr. Woodshed was sitting in the store. Fellow comes running in and says, Dalton said, there's smoke coming out of the warehouse. They run up there. Sure enough, the warehouse is on fire. It's into a stack of lumber. They cannot put it out. There's no water in the well to pump out, fight the fire. Mr. Woodshed runs into the post office and tells the lady and the postmistress that the warehouse is on fire and it will move on into this building. You need to do what you need to real quick. So they begin to bring the mail out in boxes and locking it in a vehicle there to make sure the mail didn't get burned up too. Well, right in the middle of all this, and there's a crowd gathered around Mr. Woodshed's telling everyone, stay back out of the way. It's, it's going to burn. We can't stop it. We don't have anything to fight it with. Let it go. Well, they hear a strange noise. A whoop, a whoop, a whoop, a whoop, a whoop, a whoop, a whoop. Somebody looks, and off in the distance, they see the Shortridge family coming in their old truck. They're just flying down the road because Mr. Shortridge never really, really learned how to drive. He just kind of holds it on the floor until he gets there. They come a-flying, and somebody says, get out of the way, he's not going to stop. Sure enough, right across the sidewalk and kawump right up one step there, and right into the warehouse they go right through those double doors. Crash, right in the middle of everything. Well, those boys jump off the back of that truck, and they've ever one got on those old denim jumpers, and they peel them off, and they begin to slap them and fight that fire. Mr. Shortridge is right there. Miss Shortridge hops up in the back of the truck, and she has her Avant Funeral Home fan in one hand and her bonnet in the other, and she's directing the operation. Over here, Horace. Right over there, Heck. Get right over there, Arnold. And she's directing them. In no time flat, they have fire put out. They beat it out. Everybody's impressed. They can't believe it was raging, and the Shortridge family has run right up in the middle of it and put the fire out and saved the community. Everybody's, Mr. Woodshed has tears in his eyes. He can't believe it happened. He wants to do something for Mr. Bill and the boys. 
He says, I'm going to put in $100 myself, but any of you that wants to make a donation. He lays a $100 bill in his hat, and he passes it around. Mr. Williams owned the store across the road from him. He puts in a pretty good amount, and everybody in the crowd puts money in. They're really impressed. The Shortwood family has saved the town. And they make up about nearly $400 there, which was quite a sum 60 years ago. They're all so impressed. Mr. Woodshed gives it to Mr. Shortridge. Mr. Shortridge says, it wasn't really anything. We were just glad to do it. No, but we want you to have this bill. You, you have saved the town. Mr. Shortridge thanks him and puts the money in his pocket. Mr. Woodshed said, what are you going to do with the money, Bill, if you don't care to tell us? Well, it's not long till Mama's birthday, and I'd like her to have a new dress for her birthday. And, well, the boys is kind of, some of them kind of burn their denim jumpers a little bit. I'll get all of them a new jumper. And, uh, but the first, before we do any of that, we're going to get some brakes put on this truck before I run over something else with it. So, maybe he really didn't intend to run up in the warehouse. That may have just happened. One one short one before we go here, I think. My grandfather was Fred Jones. He was quite a character. He traded on animals all the time. If you had a cow in your pasture and he came by, He'd stop and trade you out of it if he could. The trading always went his way. He was quite a shrewd trader. Down the road from him was a gentleman named Hal Howell. It's H-A-L-H-O-W-E-L, but the way the people pronounced it, it all sounded like the same name, old Hal Howell. And he and my granddad said horrible things about each other, but they were really close friends. It was just a habit with them. They always bad-mouthed the other one. Well, Mr. Howell had a pony in his field. My grandfather passed her one day, and it was a very scrubby-looking old pony. Looked like it really wasn't fit to keep. Grandpa said, Hal, what are you doing to that pony? Well, I traded the goat for it, he said. Grandpa said, would you take $5 for it? No, 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 I wouldn't take anything less than 10 Grandpa kept talking there and talked him into selling it, I think, for $7. I got the honor of getting out of the car and leading it home, but it wasn't far, so it wasn't a big deal. Grandpa always had a knack for feeding an animal so that it really looked good in a little while. Well, in a week or so's time, we had that pony shining. He was slick and shiny. And Mr. Howell comes by and sees it. And he says, Fred, that's not the same pony. He said, oh, it is, too. Howell, he said, I just fed it. You hadn't been feeding it. Well, I had, too. He said, well, you hadn't been feeding it the right thing. Mr. Howell wanted the pony back awfully bad. He said, Fred, I'll give you $20 for that pony. No, 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 no. Wouldn't take less than 100 for that pony. Well, they keep talking. I think Grandpa takes $25 for it. I get the honor of leading it back down to Mr. Howell's field and turning it loose. So a few days later, some of my cousins are there, and they're whining because the pony's not there. Grandpa drives down to Mr. Howell's, and he tells him, I'm going to have to ask you to sell me that pony back. said, I didn't know my grandchildren was as, as attached to it as they are. They're crying about it. What do you take for it? Fifty dollars. He said, no, 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 I can't give that. said, I'll give you thirty-five. So I laid the pony back up to Grandpa's. 
My grandpa's brother built in horses and mules. He had a little pony cart he hadn't used in a long time, a little two-wheel cart and harness. Grandpa got that, and he harnessed up the pony, and all of us that wanted to could ride in the little two-wheel cart. We was having a lot of fun. Mr. Howell and some of his grandchildren passed one day, and they saw us playing with the pony. So they had to have it back. I think Grandpa got $50 out of it that time. And then extra for the cart and harness. Well, it wasn't but a few days later when Grandpa studied about one day, and he said, you know, that pony would mind good. I could probably plow the garden with him, too. Down the road we go. He buys the pony back for $65. I lead it back up the road. Well, just a day or two later, a man from over on Sand Mountain, which was about 40 miles away, comes through. He has bought some horses from Grandpa's brother. He says, I see you got a good pony there. I'd like to have it. Grandpa sells that pony for $100. Well, the next day, Mr. Howell comes by. No pony in the pasture. He stops. He says, Fred, where's our pony? Grandpa told him, said, I sold it to a man over on Sand Mountain. He said, Fred, why would you sell that pony? Could you not see that both of us were making a good living off of that pony? So, that was the end of the pony. <laughs>